The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Our last class, he is running from his home uh, in New Jersey due to snow, so he, he couldn't fly, fly in. Uh, but actually, it's a, now, now I'm learning a lot. It's a good way to, uh, uh, to run the classes going forward, <laughs> <laughs> I think. Uh, we may employ it next year. Uh, so uh, he will uh, present uh, CVA modeling for about an hour, uh, and uh, then Jake uh, Peter and myself will we, we'll do concluding remarks, and uh, we, we will be happy to answer any questions on the projects uh, or any questions whatsoever. All right? So, Yi, please, thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Sorry I couldn't make it in person because of snow, um, but uh, I'm happy right to have this opportunity to discuss with you guys counterparty credit risk as a part of an enterprise level derivatives modeling. I run across asset modeling group at Morgan Stanley, and hopefully you'll see why it is called cross asset modeling. Soon. Okay, counterparty credit risk exists mainly in OTC derivatives. When you have an OTC derivative trade, sometimes you owe your counterparty money, sometimes your counterparty owes you money, right? If your counterparty owes you money, you know, on the payment date, your counterparty may actually default, and therefore it will not pay you the full amount it owes you, okay? The default event includes bankruptcy, failure to pay, and a few other events. So obviously, we have a default risk. If our counterparty defaults, we would lose part of our receivable, okay? However, the question is, before the counterparty defaults, do we have any other risks? Imagine you have a case where your counterparty will pay you in 10 years, okay? So he doesn't need to pay you anything, okay? Then the question is, are you concerned about counterparty risk or not? Well, the question is yes. As many of you probably know, it's the marked market risk due to the likelihood of a counterparty future default, okay? It is like the counterparty spike widening. Even though you do not need a payment from your counterparty, if you were to sell, you know, your derivative uh, trade to someone, and someone may actually worry about that. Okay, so therefore the market market will become lower if the counterparty spread widens. Okay, this is similar to a corporate bond, you know, in terms of uh, economics, right? You own a bond, 
okay, on the coupon payment date or on, you know, right, principal date, the counterparty can default. Of course, they can default in between also. But in terms of terminology, you know, this is not called counterparty risk. This is called issuer risk. So here comes an important concept, credit valuation adjustment. As we know, the counterparty credit risk is a risk. Okay, whenever there's a risk, you know, we could put a price on that risk. Credit valuation adjustment, CVA, essentially is the price of a counterparty credit risk. Okay, many multi-market risks, of course, include, you know, default risk too, right? It is an adjustment to the price or market from a counterparty default free model or broker quote. Okay, so, you know, people know, right, there's a broker quote. The broker doesn't know, you know, the counterparty risk. A lot of our trade models does not know uh, the counterparty risk either, mainly because of the, uh, you know, portfolio effect, which I will talk about in a minute. So therefore, there is a need to actually have a separate price of CVA to be added to the price or mark the market from counterparty default free model to get a true economic price. Okay. In contrast, you know, in terms of a bond, typically there's no need uh you know for CVA because it is priced in the market already. Okay. And uh CVA not only has important mark to market uh, implications. It is also a part of a Basel III credit capital. Okay. Not only, you know, change your valuation, but could impact your return on capital. Because of a CVA risk, the capital requirement typically is higher. Okay. So you, you may have a bigger, uh, denominator in this, uh, return, uh, RE, return on capital or ca return on equity, right? CVA risk, as you may know, has been a very, you know, important risk, especially since the crisis of 2008. Okay. During the crisis, uh, a significant financial loss actually is coming from CVA loss, meaning market market loss due to counterparties' future default. And this loss turned out to be actually higher than the actual default loss and the, than the actual counterparty default. Uh, again, come back to our question, right? How do we, you know, think in terms of uh, pricing a derivative and the price the, you know, the CVA, you know, together with the derivatives? Okay. First of all, it has some, you know, portfolio effect, right? The counterparty can trade multiple trades, and the default loss or default risk can be different depending on the portfolio. And when people use a trade level derivative model. Which is, you know, by default, what people call a derivative model. Typically, you price each trade, you know, price one trade at a time, and then you aggregate, you know, the market market, right, together, to get a portfolio, you know, valuation. So when you price one trade, you does not need to know, you do not need to know there may be another trade facing the same counterparty. 
But for CVA, what kind of party risk? This is not true. Okay, we will go over some examples soon. And this is a, you know one application of of what I call enterprise level derivative, essentially focusing on modeling nonlinear effects, nonlinear risks in the derivatives portfolio. Here is a concrete example. Hopefully, you know can help you guys to gain some intuition on the counterparty risk and CDA. Okay, suppose you have an OTC derivative trade. For instance, like IR swap, it could be a, a portfolio of trades. Okay, and let's make it simple. You know, let's assume the trade PV uh, was zero on day one. Okay, of course we assume. You know, we don't know anything about counterparty credit risk. We don't know anything about CBA. This is just to show how CBA become you know recognized you know by people, right? So st to start with, again, the trade the trade TV uh, was zero on day one, which is true uh, for a lot of swap trades. And then the trade TV um, became hundred million dollars later on. Okay, and then your counterparty defaults. Okay, with fifty percent recovery, and you get paid, you know, fifty million dollars of cash. Okay, so hundred million times fifty percent recovery, right? If your counterparty doesn't default, you eventually would get hundred million dollars. Now it defaults, you get half of it, fifty million dollars. The question is, have you made $50 million or have you lost $50 million over the life of the trade? Anyone has any ideas? Can people raise your hand if you think you have made $50 million? Can, can I see the people in the class? I couldn't see anyone. No, okay, no one thing made the $50 million. Okay, so I guess then, do, do you all think you have lost $50 million? Can people raise your hand if you think you have lost $50 million? Okay, and, and I see people, some people did not raise your hand. That means you are thinking you are flat? Or, or maybe you want to save your opinion later? Okay, so this is a um, a common question I normally ask in my uh, presentation, and I typically get two answers. Some people think you've made, you know, some people think they've made fifty million dollars. Some people think they have lost fifty million dollars. And uh, you know, there was one case. Someone said, uh, "Okay, uh, you know, they are flat." Now, this would look like a new interesting situation where no one thinks you made $50 million. I mean, come on, you have $50 million of cash, you know, in the door. And you don't think you have made $50 million. You know, you have a zero from day one. Now you have $50 million. Okay. All right. Anyway, so for, for those who think you have lost money, I don't know if it's a good idea, right? I mean, 
can someone tell us why do you think you lost $50 million? You went from zero to positive $50 million. Why do you think you lost $50 million? Are we equipped to allow people to answer questions? In front of them. Okay, so people choose <laughs> not to avoid your opinion. Is it because you have to pay? It's a swap, and you have to pay a hundred million dollars to someone on the other side of the trade. Okay, very good. So essentially, you are saying hedging. Is that what you are trying to get to? So you have a swap, zero, and you have offsetting swap as a hedge. Is that what you are trying to say? No, I'm, I'm saying that if you're the intermediary between for a swap, then you have to pay $100 million on the other end. So if you're okay. receiving 50 and paying Fine. 100, you have a loss. That's, that, that, that's good, right. So intermediate, right. I mean, that's you know, similar to a hedge situation you know, also, right. So that, that's correct. That's basically you know, the reason, right, for a dealer, right. Essentially, we are required to hedge with very high down the limit. Right, we actually would lose $50 million, mainly on the hedge side, okay? When our trade went from zero to a positive $100 million, our hedge would have gone from zero to negative you know, $100 million. The fact that we receive only half you know, of what we are, you know, what we need to receive, and yet we have to pay you know, the full amount that we need to pay on the hedge side. Essentially, we lost $50 million, okay? But that's where, you know, the CVA, you know, and the CVA trading, CVA risk management would come in. Again, CVA is a price of a counterparty spread risk, right? And, uh, you know, if you hedge, right, the underlying trader, whoever trades swap, if you hedge, you can see that, right? Theoretically, right, you will be made whole you know, upon kind of our defaults. So you would receive $50 million from counterparty, and theoretically you would receive $50 million from the CD desk if you hedge with CD desk. Okay. Now, second part of the uh, CDA, you know, is how do we quantify CDA? You know, how much is the CDA, right? CDA on the receivable, which we typically charge uh, to the counterparty, Essentially, it's given by this formula, right? Uh, NPE means mean positive exposure, meaning only our receivable side when the counterparty owes us money, and times the counterparty CDS part spread, okay? Times duration, okay? The wider the spread, the more likely the counterparty, uh, you know, will default, the more we need to charge the CDA. And the same thing is true for the duration. The longer the duration of the trade is, there's more you know, time for the counterparty to default. So we need to charge more. I mean, very importantly, you know, there's a negative sign because the CVA you know, on the receivable side is our uh, liability. And it's what we need to charge our uh, counterparty. And uh, there are some theoretical articles that they don't include the sign. That's okay for theoretical purposes. But uh, practically, if you miss this sign, it seems very confusing. Okay, now here's more accurate formula for CVA. You know, on the MPE side, 
on the SSI, right? So we can see, right, to start with, there's an indicator function where this capital T is the final maturity of the trade or counterparty portfolio. And this tau is the counterparty's uh, default time, first default time, okay? And uh, if the uh, tau is greater than, you know, uh, this capital T, essentially that means the default happens after the counterparty portfolio occurs. And therefore, we do not have counterparty risk. So that's what the indicator is about. And if the counterparty defaults before uh, the maturity, that's when we will have um, counterparty credit risk. And there's a you know future valuation of the counterparty portfolio uh, right be, you know right before the counterparty defaults. And this is how much collateral we hold against this portfolio. So. The net, you know, receivable, you know, the net amount where this future value is greater than the uh, collateral, right, is our sort of uh, exposure, okay, how much the counterparty would owe us, right. And this, uh, you know, 1 minus R essentially is the recovery. So 1 minus R times, the, you know, uh, exposure essentially is the future loss given default. And this beta essentially is normal mark, uh, money market account for discounting. And this is the uh, uh, expectation and uh, the uh, risk, neutral measure. Okay. It looks simple, but you know, if you get to the details, it's actually um, fairly complex. Mainly because the portfolio effect and this option-like payoff. You know, if you recognize this uh, positive sign here, Essentially, you recognize this is like optimal, right? And uh, so again, you know, here's about some details of nonlinear portfolio effects. Okay, first of all, we talk about you know offsetting trades. In the previous example, right? You know, you have one trade, right? Uh, went from zero to hundred million. Counterparty defaults, you get paid fifty million. Essentially, you lost fifty million, right? But what if you have another trade facing the same counterparty? But that's offsetting, right? When the first trade went from zero to 100 million, uh, the offsetting trade can go from zero to negative 100 million. And therefore, if the counterparty were to default, you're going to have a zero default loss. That's just one example of portfolio because of offsetting trades. So therefore, in order to price CVA, you got to know all the trades you have facing the same counterparty. This is very different from a trade level model where you only need to know one trade at a time. Okay, there's also asymmetry of uh, handling of a receivable, meaning assets, versus a payable, meaning liabilities. Okay, and that's where the option like payoff. Uh, it comes about, okay? So typically, roughly speaking, right, if we have a receivable from our counterparty, if counterparty were to default, we're gonna receive a fraction of it. So we have, a, we would incur default loss. However, if we have a payable to our counterparty, 
And if the counterparty were to default, we more or less need to pay the full amount. So we don't have a default gain per se. So this asymmetry is the uh, reason for this option-like payoff we just saw. Right. And uh, as you know, a counterparty right, can trade many derivative instruments across many assets, such as interest rate, FX, credit equity, and a lot of times also commodities, and sometimes also mortgage. Okay? And my group is responsible for the modeling of the underlying exposure you know, for CVA, for capital, as well as for liquidity because of multiple assets are involved and we need to model cross-asset. So therefore we named our group cross-asset modeling. Furthermore, it is not only we have option-like payoff, which is non-linear, we have an option essentially on a basket of a cross-asset derivative trades. And the modeling becomes even more difficult. So that's you know when the enterprise level you know uh, will come in, and the enterprise level model, which we'll touch upon a little bit more later on, will need to leverage um, three-level derivatives models, and therefore we'll need to do a lot of morning hill related stuff. Martingale uh, testing, resembling, you know, interpolation, right? So here's a little bit more information on the uh, CDA. We have talked about asset or NTE CDA, essentially for our asset or receivable. Okay, this formula we have, uh, you know, discussed already, the first one. Um, there is also, theoretically, a liability. CVA. Okay. Essentially is you know the CV on the payable side. When the bank, you know, or, or you know, when us having a likelihood of default. Okay. And this, you know, is a benefit for us. Right. So the formula is fairly symmetric, right, as you can recognize. Except you know, the default time or default event is not for the counterparty, but for us, okay? And uh, and then, you know, the positive sign here became a negative sign, essentially to indicate this is a payable, right? Negative liability to us, right? I mean, this is an interesting discussion. First, the default, okay? Um, you know, we talked about, you know, if the counterparty were to default, why we more or less, you know, need to pay the counterparty full amount. Okay. So this argument can be used on the receivable side. So if, uh, you know, uh, we have a receivable and if we were to default first, roughly speaking, you know, the counterparty would pay us you know, close to the full amount, right? And there's some people start to think about, okay, when we price CVA, we, we got to know among, you know, counterparty and itself, uh, which one 
uh, is first default. But Marg means that we do not need uh, to, to consider that, right? And uh, I have some reference for you guys to right, uh, take a look if you are interested in this problem. But I'm not going to spend much time because we have a lot to go over, okay? Now, here, here is another example. Um, you have a trade, same as the previous trade, okay? The trade PV was zero on day one, and the trade PV becomes $100 million uh, later on. Uh, this time, of course, the counterparty risks are properly hedged, okay? Then the question is, do you have any other risks? Does anyone want to try to tell us, do you see any other risks? There are actually, you know, uh, several categories, categories of risk we will have. I wonder if anyone would like to try to share with us your opinion. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Yeah. Um, some form of interest rate risk. Interest rate risk. Okay, fine. This is the uh, market risk. Yes, you're right. I mean, there is interest rate risk. Uh, but I did mention here, uh, the market risks are property hatched. So that means this interest rate risk of this trade can be canceled by the hedge. Uh, what are the risks? Is there a key man risk? So if the trader that made the trade like leaves and doesn't know, uh, you know what's okay. the portfolio? That, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, there is a risk like that. Yeah. A any other risks? Okay. Um, Okay, let's go over this then. I claim there is a cash flow liquidity funding risk. Okay. Our trade is not collateralized. And then I claim we need funding for uncollateralized derivative receivables. Meaning we are about to receive $100 million, you know, in the future. We don't have it now. And I claim we actually need to come up with cash for it. In many cases, in most cases, not ever everything. Anyone has any idea why when you're about to receive money, you actually need to come up with money. This come back to the hedging argument, similar to CVA, right? Essentially, if you were to hedge your trade with futures or with another dealer, which are typically collateralized, that means when you are about to receive $100 million, essentially you are about to pay hundred million dollars on your hedge. The fact, right, if you hedge with futures, the stay market market, that means you, are, you need to actually really come up with hundred million dollar cash. The same is true for collateralized trade. And 
there, that's where you know the risk is, because when you need to come up with this money and you don't have it, what are you gonna do, right? You may you know end up like Lehman. And there's also uh, contingent you know, funding liquidity risk, meaning how much liquidity risk is dependent on the market condition. Okay, how much interest rate change, how much other you know you know market risk factor changes like equity. And depending on the market condition, and you may not know beforehand. So that would be uh, another challenge. That if you turn the argument around, applying the argument to the uh, payable, and if you have uncollateralized payable, essentially you would have a funding or liquidity benefit. So one interesting thing to manage this liquidity risk essentially is to use uncollateralized payable funding benefit right, to partially hatch the funding risk in uncollateralized year to receivables. There are a lot of other risks. For instance, you know, tail risk uh, and, uh, you know, equity capital risks. Right. Now, here's one more, you know, example I'd like to go over with you guys um, on the application of uh, CDA. Okay. This is about setting put options or put spreads. Right. If you trade, you know, stocks yourself, you may have thought about this problem, right? I mean, either you can uh, buy the stock outright, or you can sell put, okay? Possibly with, uh, you know, strike lower than the current price, right? And with that, you more or less have, you know, like a similar payoff, right? Some people may argue, okay, if you sell put, if the stock comes down, you're gonna lose money, right? But you're gonna lose money if you were to hold the stock outright also, right? One of the disadvantages is that if you sell put, right, if the stock is not put to you, and you, you're not participating in the upside. When the stock price increase, you know, significantly, right, then you're not gonna capture that side, right? But of course, one thing people can do is you continue to sell put, right, so it become like an income trade. Right. So it's it's an interesting strategy. Some people say setting put is like name your own price and get paid for trying it. And that's why that's why you know we have this famous trade. One Buffett Berkshire sold long dated puts on four leading stock indices in US, UK, Europe, and Japan. Collected about four billion premium without posting collateral. Okay, without posting collateral, you know, that was uh, very important, right? This is something I actually was fairly involved in one of my uh, previous jobs. This happened about, I think, two, around 2005, 2006. Okay, it's one of the main you know, biggest trades, okay? And I was told, right, in, in, when I was involved in this, this was like one of the biggest cash outflow in the derivative trades at that time. 
right? Because uh, Warren Buffett collected the premium without posting collateral, right? If he had agreed to post collateral right during the crisis, 2008, you know, he's going to post many billion dollars of collateral. As one reason he had more cash than other people was he's very careful, right? And I think that you have a reference if you are interested, then you can uh, essentially see the link. And uh, what's interesting is that you know there were you know uh, few dealers quite few dealers who are interested in, in this trade, a big, you know, size, right? And, you know, long the you know, actually often it's not easy to handle, but I think um, a lot of people were able to handle. <laughs> to me, um, some people were not able to trade or enter this trade, not because they could not handle the active risk, it's they could not handle the... Uh, CVA Okay, first of all, we know there's a CVA, right? You know, essentially, we you know bought you know option from Warren Buffett, right? Eventually, he may need to pay, and at that time, he may default, right? So that's a regular CVA risk. But there's also a runway risk, meaning a more severe risk, right? You can imagine, right? Um, when the market you know, sells off, right? Warren Buffett would actually owe us more money, right? Do you think in that scenario, he will be more likely to default or less likely to default, right? He will be more likely to default. That's where the term runway risk comes in. When your counterparty owes you more and more money, that's when he is more and more likely to default. Right. That's even harder to model. And there's a liquidity funding risk, which can also be wrong way. Right? Because as a dealer you may need to come up with a billion or two you know, cash and to pay Berkshire. Right. Where do you get the money from? Right. Typically people need to issue a debt, right? To fund in a senior and secure way. And essentially you pay the credit spread on your debt. And that is essentially the cost of your liquidity or funding. So what we did was essentially uh, charge, you know, Warren Buffett CBA and runway CBA, charge the funding cost, you know, some runway funding cost. Another challenge, of course, is that some dealers, I suspect, they could price CBA, but they do not have a good CV trading desk risk management to do the risk management of CV and funding, right? Once you have, you know, this position at hand, right? You have, you know, counterparty risk, right? How do you hedge it, right? You charge Warren Buffett X, you know, uh, you know, million dollars for the CV. If you don't do anything, when they are spread, widens, you're going to have a lot more CV loss, right? So you need to, you know, risk manage that, right? Of course, you can do dynamic hedge, right? But dynamic hedge 
you know, if we drill down to details, it requires a fair amount of, uh, you suffer a fair amount of gas risk, right? It's not like a bond, right? If you own a bond, you can buy, you know, a CDS protection on the same bond. More or less, you are hatched for a while, you know, in a static way. But for CVA, it's not. The reason for that is the exposure can change all the time. One thing, you know, we tried at the time, essentially, we um, sort of structured a credit-linked note type of trace, right? Essentially, you go to people who own or would like to buy, you know, Berkshire's bond, essentially, to tell them, okay, we have a credit asset similar to, you know, Berkshire's bond. If you feel comfortable with owning Berkshire's bond, you may consider, you know, our asset which pays, you know, more coupon. And the reason we were able to pay more coupon is we were able to park in you know, Berkshire a lot of money. And uh, there's also a trunk portfolio protection thing that involved, but I'm gonna skip that for the sake of for the sake of time. But then the question is, right, I mean we charge a lot of money from Berkshire. Why would they want to do this trade? Right, what would they think? Right, so here's my guess. Right, as you know, they have a insurance business, and then they wanted to explore other ways to sell insurance. So selling puts essentially is selling insurance on the equity market, and they they sold they sold like a 10, 15 uh, year maturity puts. Right at the below then spot, so then people can think, okay, what's the likelihood of uh, you know a stock price coming down uh, to below the current spot in 10, 15 years? Well, it happened, but not very likely. And they do have you know a day one cash inflow. So essentially, one thing, one way Berkshire was thinking is that they got low funding costs, right? If you read Warren Buffett's paper, essentially he thinks it's like one percent interest rate on that, like a ten-year, you know, uh, cash, something like that, right? And it's very important they manage their liquidity well, right? And they will not have any cash flow until the trade matures, okay? So that's how they avoided, you know, the cash flow drain during 2008, right? Even though they did suffer. Um, Unrealized marginal market loss. Uh, but what's interesting is that during 2008, 2009, you know, Berkshire did explore the feasibility of posting collateral. Okay, they started with no collateral posting, but then they wanted to post collateral. They actually approached some of the dealers saying, "Oh, I, I, I want to post some collateral." Why is that? Right, there's no free lunch, right? So what happened was, he, you know, they were smart not to oppose collateral, but during crisis, right, their spread widened. Every, everyone's spread widened, right? So Berkshire's spread widened, and uh, you know, uh, Warren Buffett owed more money. So guess what? The CV hedging would require the dealer to buy more and more protection on Berkshire. When you buy more and more protection on someone, that would actually drive that person's, that entity's credit spread even wider. 
So Berkshire essentially saw their credit spread widening a lot more than they had uh, hoped for, than they had anticipated. And later, later on, they found out it was due to CDA having CDA risk management. Okay, so, and that actually affected their bond issues. When you have high credit spread from CDS market, essentially the cash market may actually um, question, may actually follow, right? And whoever would like to buy Berkshire's bond would think twice, okay, I, if I have to buy this bond, if I ever have to buy you know, credit protection is going to cost me a lot more now because of the spread widening. So therefore, I'm going to be more, I'm going to demand higher coupon on Berkshire's bond, and that drives their funding cost. <coughs> so they explored in a different ways the whole model. Right? Now, another thing, of course, is very interesting to think to ask. Right, Berkshire, you know, thinks they are making money, and the dealer thinks they are making money, which is probably true, right? But then the question is, who, you know, is losing money? Or who will lose money? Anyone has any ideas? I think there's probably a lot, lot of answers to this. Right? My, my view is that essentially whoever need to hedge whoever need to you know buy put right and uh, if the market doesn't you know decline as much as, as you hope for essentially you'll pay for put premium and did not get you know the benefit okay here's an interesting CV conundrum now, hopefully by this time, you guys fully appreciate, you know, the CVA risk and the impact of CVA, right? In terms of risk itself, in terms of magnitude, right? As I mentioned earlier, during the crisis, 2008 crisis, it was easily billions of dollar loss for some of the firms due to CVA. And that's more than actually uh, the actual default loss, right? Now, given you know the CVA, right? So if you trade with counterparty A, naturally you will say, you, you want to think, okay, you know, I want to buy protection, right, to hedge my CVA risk. So you buy credit protection on A from counterparty B. But again, I mean, right, if you trade with counterparty B, you would have, um, CVA against counterparty B, right? You would have a credit risk against counterparty B. So what are you gonna do, right? If you just, you know, follow the, uh, you know, a simple thinking, if you may think, oh, okay, maybe I should buy, you know, credit protection on B uh, from counterparty C, right? But if you were to do that, then you end up you have to continue on this. It becomes an infinite series, right? Infinite series, okay, I would say theoretically, but in practice, I feel it's gonna be very challenging to handle, right? So what will be a simple strategy to actually terminate this infinite series quickly, right? 
Right. So, uh, yeah, th th this also has theoretical implication for CD pricing, right? You know, sometimes we say, okay, arbitrage pricing is really replication. Use hash instruments. Now you have to use infinite number of hash instruments, right? Well, you know, that's going to impact your replication, right? Uh, modeling, right? So the way people do, right, uh, practically is to buy credit protection on A from counterparty B, fully collateral, typically from dealer. Okay. So however much money you owe from uh, counterparty B, right away they they're gonna post counterparty. In a way, it's more or less similar to future counterparty, you know, settling, and that minimizes uh, the uh, counterparty risk. So you can cut off this infinite uh, series uh, easily. Um, so here, you know, I like to touch upon uh, what I call enterprise level derivatives modeling. Uh, we, we mentioned tree level derivative models. That essentially uh, is such a regular model. Right, I mean, when people talk about derivative models, essentially people talk about tree-level models. Essentially, your model is trade independently, right? Your model is price, market market, or it's Greeks or sensitivity. And then when you have a portfolio of these trades, essentially you can just aggregate their PV, their Greeks, right, through linear aggregation. And then essentially you get the PV of the portfolio. Okay, but as we have seen already, you know that's that doesn't capture the complete picture. There are additional risks that require further modeling, right? One is nonlinear portfolio risks, right? So essentially, these risks cannot be like a linear aggregation of the risks of each of the component trade in the portfolio, right? Example we have gone through is CVA. Bonding is of similar nature. Uh, capital liquidity are also examples, right? And the key to handle uh, this situation is to be able to model all the trades in the market and the market risk factors of portfolio consistently. So that you can handle the offsetting trade, you know, properly. Okay. Of course, the uh, you know we need to leverage the trade level model essentially to price, you know, each individual trade as of today, as of a future date. Right. What's interesting is that, that there's also feedback, you know, to the trade level models. Right. Uh, for instance, we price a cancelable swap, okay, at a very popular trade. Now, this cancelable swap, right, we trade with a counterparty. Let's say, assume it's counterparty. We trade with a counterparty. That's close to default, right? You know, the trade level model doesn't know about this counterparty, you know, about default. The trade level will give you uh, independent, you know, the exercise boundary, you know, when do you need to cancel the swap? Independent of the counterparty credit quality. Right? That invites a question. 
right? When the color body is close to default, even if your model says, okay, you should not exercise, you know, based on the uh, market condition, but shouldn't we consider the counterparty condition, credit condition, right? If the counterparty were close to default, if you cancel your swap sooner, essentially you eliminate uh, or reduce the counterparty risk, right? This is actually interesting, you know, application and feedback between, you know, trade level models and the, uh, you know, enterprise level models, right? So what we did was, in some of my previous job, what we did was we actually figure out, okay, the counterparty risk in the in these trades, major trades, right? And then essentially we just tell the underlying trader, okay, if you were to cancel this trade, you know, we have uh, a benefit for you because we're gonna reduce the CV, right? Or even you know zero out CV, so the CV trader would be able to pay the underlying trader. So therefore, you know, the underlying model actually can take this as an input, right? Rather than, you know, as part of the uh, exercise uh, condition modeling, right? Knowing if you cancel earlier, you potentially can get additional benefit, right? This model may tell you, right, to handle the risks more properly, market risks together with counterparty risks. Right. I mean, this is roughly, you know, um, the scope and and the application of the enterprise level model. This is actually um, a fairly significant, uh, you know, modeling efforts as well as, you know, significant infrastructure and data efforts. Right. And essentially, it requires a fair amount of, uh, you know, morning testing, morning refining. Modeling interpolation and the modeling modeling. Right. The reason for that is when you have you know a trade model, okay, and each trade model can model a particular trade, you know, accurately, okay, and there's certain you know uh, market modeling, you know, simulation of the underlying market or you know grid PDE, right? But when you put you know, a portfolio of trades together, right? You know, the methodology you use for modeling one trade accurately may not necessarily be the methodology you need to model other trades accurately, right? Some require PDE, some require, you know, simulation, but you need to put them together, right? Typically, we use simulation, and and that introduces numerical inaccuracies. And the modeling testing will tell us, okay, are we introduced a lot of errors? Modeling resampling essentially would allow us to correct the errors. As you know, uh, the modeling is like a foundation of the arbitrage, you know, pricing, right? Essentially, modeling resampling will actually be able to enforce uh, the modeling conditions in the numerical procedure, not only theoretically, right? Modeling your interpolation modeling are other important interesting aspects. If we have time, we can talk about that. This is systematic approach. There are you know different approaches, but how to do it in a systematic way still remains um, additional work. Right.
So I'd like to quickly go over some of the examples of Martingale, the Martingale measure. Right. I may need to go through this, you know, quite quickly uh, due to you know the time limitation. But hopefully you guys have learned all these already. Right? This is hopefully more like a review for you guys. Right? So essentially we are talking about a few examples, right? What's the Martingale measure for four by four LIBOR, four robberies, for the FX rate, for the CDS power coupon. I would hope you guys would know you know the first few already. The four CDS power coupon in my view is actually fairly challenging. Um you know, for simplicity, I'm not considering the collateral discounting uh explicitly, right? That you know, as additional uh, challenges, but still we can address that, right? So under the uh, risk-neutral measures, right? Uh, essentially, you know, uh, for this, uh, you know, Y of P being the price of a traded asset with no intermediate cash flow, right? Essentially, uh, you know, this Y you know, T over beta P is a Martingale, right? I mean, this is essentially the Harrison-Fiskar Martingale no arbitrary theorem, right? Essentially, says, right, for two traded assets with no intermediate cash flows, uh, you know, satisfying, you know, certain technical conditions, the ratio is a Martingale. And there's a uh, probability measure corresponding to the numerical axis, okay? Therefore, uh, you know, naturally we have this conclusion, right? The forward arbitrage-free measure essentially corresponding to a numerator of uh, zero coupon amount, right? Naturally, uh, we can find, you know, this Y of P uh, and uh, the P, PT ratio is morning, right? Again, it's just ratio of two traded assets with no intermediate uh, cash flows, right? And, you know, from the definition of the forward price, right? You know, essentially the forward price is, you know, a Martingale under the uh, forward measure, right? Forward LIBOR, right? This is the forward LIBOR. Essentially, it's a ratio of two zero coupon bonds. So naturally, we know it's a Martingale under the numerator axis, right? So essentially, it's a forward measure up to the payment of the forward LIBOR, okay? So this is the Martingale condition, right? Uh, similarly, we can do this in an argument on the forward swap rate, right? Essentially, a forward swap rate is, you know, um, we can start with like a annuity, right? A numeric, right? And then since the forward swap rate, essentially, we know is the difference of uh, two zero comma bond divided by annuity, right? And therefore, we can conclude, you know, based on Harrison Pliska theorem, uh, this forward swap rate essentially is the uh, Martingale under the annuity measure, with this annuity uh, as the numerator. The same argument goes, you know, for the uh, forward effect. I mean, the idea, I mean, all the patterns you probably have seen is for any quantity, Right, you see if you can find two assets, and then use these two assets ratio, right, 
uh, to represent this inequality. So the forward fx rate essentially, you know, is a ratio like this, right? This is nothing more than the uh, interest rate parity, right? From the spot, right? You uh, grow both, right? You start with spot, you grow the domestic currency, and then you grow the foreign currency, right? You get FX forward, right? And the FX forward is a Hardinger measure under the domestic forward measure. Right, and this is uh, uh, a simple uh, technique to do the uh, change of a probability measure. I mean, it's roughly how I, you know, remember, you know, uh, change of a probability measure and the readout mean deviation. Right, you essentially start with uh, again morning here, right? Assuming, you know. This is Martingale, right? And uh, under a particular measure corresponding to the numeric asset, right? And then this quantity is also a Martingale under a different measure corresponding to a different numeric numeric asset, right? One key point is when you change in a probability measure, essentially you change the numeric corresponding to the probability measure, right? And therefore, essentially, uh, important thing is, right, you know, we know the PV or, you know, the market market of a traded security is measure independent, right? Doesn't matter, you know, what, what mathematics you use, right? If the traded security, it, you know, it's gonna, you know, match the market price. And therefore, you can uh, price this security under one measure or one numeric, and then you can price it again with another measure, another numeric, and they got to be the same, right? Then naturally, you see, you know, this is a simple equation at the starting point to do the change of measure, right? If you just simply change a variable, right, then essentially, you get your change of measure, as well as you know, uh, written nicotine derivative. Uh, if you worked on the you know, BTM model, you probably recognize this, you know, change of measure, right? Which is used for uh, BGM model under the full uh, measure, right? Now here's the, you know the subtlety, right? Uh, credit derivatives, right? Naturally, people would think, okay, uh, since the um, Forward swap rate um, is a uh, Martingale under the annuity method, right? Naturally, people will think, okay, then the forward, uh, you know, CDS par rate, right? It's like a forward swap rate. Got to be a uh, Martingale under the uh, uh, risky annuity measure, okay? So that's quite intuitive, except there's one problem. Right, if you know the reference credit entity has zero recovery upon default, then this risky annuity could have a zero. And now we are talking about we use we want to use something that can be zero 
as our numerator, right? You know, how do we you know resolve this technical uh, mathematical problem, right? So that's actually very interesting. Well, you know, uh, Schubanker was first person who published a paper on on this one. Okay, you know, I was just trying to do some work myself uh, when I was working on BGN model. I thought would it wouldn't be nice to extend the BGN model, right, to the credit uh, right? But then immediately, you know, I stumbled with this difficulty, where when the recovery is zero, you can have a zero in your numerator, in your risky annuity, right? So Schubanker, right, essentially his idea was, you know, let's focus on survival measures. Meaning we have a difficulty, you know, if a default happens and uh, the recovery is zero. Now his idea is let's forget about that state. Okay, let's not worry about that. Okay. Okay, but you know, one immediate question people would ask, so if that's the case, right, the probability measure, okay, physical probability measure, or risk neutral probability measure, and this survival probability measure are not equivalent, right? Because the survival probability measure knows nothing about the default event. Okay, so that they are not equivalent. Right, so that's a, you know, essentially you actually, you know, uh, transform one mathematical difficulty into another one. Luckily, the second one, it turns out to be actually easier to solve, right? So the starting point is, again, using Harrison, you know, Pliska, uh theorem. Essentially, you just need to identify, like, a, you know, numerous asset and the, uh, Denominator asset, right? You know, you 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 identify two assets. You make a ratio, and then right, okay, those are a martingale, right? So essentially, this is a forward swap rate and forward annuity, you know, and um, right, and um, if we have this indicator uh, of of the default time of uh, J's credit name uh, greater than this T, essentially this is like uh, uh, the premium lag of CDS, okay? And that's a traded, you know, asset. So therefore we have, uh, you know, like this, right? The subtlety, as you probably can envision, is gonna come in when we do the change of property measure, right? Okay, so so we have talked about right, you know how how are we gonna, you know, find the martingale measure of a CDS par coupon or for CDS par rate, right? This is a you know a starting point of martingale model, right? Essentially, for any quantity you want to model, you try to find its martingale measure. And once you find this morning measure, you can do a morning representation, right? 
And then oftentimes you need to do a change of a property measure. So that all the term structure, for instance, a consequence of, uh, you know, variables are modeled in a consistent property measure, right? So finding the Martingale measure is the first point, right? So, you know, survival property measure, right? Essentially, you know, he just defined, you know, this way. You can define this rhythm Nicodine derivatives, okay? And then once you define that, essentially, you know, if you remember the previous, you know, formula, I mean, essentially, um, you will have a Martingale condition like this. It is the the probability measures are not um, equivalent anymore, but yet you can still do you know um, change of probability measure, and you know you need to separately model you know what's what's going to happen when the default happens if you want to use this model, right? Now I like to move. You know, to the second part, you know, Martingale. Well, I mean, Martingale testing, Martingale example, and interpolation, right? Martingale testing essentially given the previous Martingale conditions, right? I mean, those are, by the way, just examples. There are a lot more, right? Essentially, you know that's what it should be theoretically. You just test in your numerical implementation and see if those conditions are satisfied. Okay, that's Martingale testing. Martingale resembly is, is, you know, we know most likely if we were to test, we're going to fail. Okay, this is not necessary for enterprise level model, but even for trade level or derivative models. You know, a lot of times I've seen the Martingale conditions are not exactly satisfied, right? So one way to do that is to correct that, right? Correct, you know, this error. And uh, the rationale is essentially because of a numerical right, you know, approximations, whatever quantity we model, essentially is not a true quantity. And the true quantity we model essentially is some function of what we you know, have in our model. So therefore, you selective a certain function. Sometimes you can have a linear, log-linear function. And you know, this you know, x naught is what we have. Uh, in our model, and then this X is what we need, okay, to satisfy, you know, the Martingale condition, right? So essentially, what, what, you know, in this particular case, is very simple. You First of all, you demean, and then you adjust the deviation. So therefore, you know, given any quantity X naught, you can hack it, you know, you can force it to be any given mean. And this mean, in our case, will be determined by the Martingale condition. Okay. Uh, the next, you know, interesting thing is Martingale interpolation. Oh, I had a typo here. Right. Essentially, um, sometimes you have like an intermediate model, for instance, you model LIBOR, and you, you know, your LIBOR you, you can have a different, you know, tenors, right? Uh, you know, when you have a yield curve, you know, at any given time, there's a term structure. So, 
uh, in the model, a lot of times we can model a few, you know, selected points. But what if your model requires a term structure, a term that's not in your model? So what people normally do is you do martingale, you do interpolation. Okay, so you have a one-year LIBOR, yeah, like a you know five-year LIBOR, you know. And then you need three years. What do you do? You interpolate, for instance, right? But interpolation doesn't automatically guarantee uh, Martingale relationships, right? So Martingale interpolation has a goal of automatically satisfy the Martingale relationships. So we're a particular way of interpreting. Actually, it turns out to be so you know, condition that I wrote down on the uh, slide. Essentially, you know, this S and T are the you know calendar time, and this capital T is really like a term, like term structure. Okay, you have a one-year rate, you know, two-year rate, five-year interest rate, right? Those term structure, right? And um, how do we interpolate such that after interpolation, the corresponding morning relationships are satisfied? So here's what we do. Okay. So we start with, um, let's say, uh, capital T1. Okay. So capital T1, uh, that's a point that we model. And we assume that one is properly morning resample and satisfy the Martingale condition. And uh, this is a Martingale, uh, right, for term P capital 2. And, and that is also satisfies the corresponding Martingale condition. And our goal is to figure out, okay, T3. How do you do interpolation so for the term T capital T3 such that this capital T3 will satisfy its own corresponding Martingale condition, right? If you do simply linear interpolation, you know, using T as, you know, capital T as uh, independent variable, right? Essentially, uh, you're not going to achieve that, right? So the key is you know, we need to choose the proper uh, independent variable uh, for the interpolation. Essentially, is the previous time or time zero uh, quantity. Okay, so time s is before time t. We can imagine time s will be zero. Okay, so using the corresponding quantity at a time zero as independent variable, then essentially you can achieve that. Okay, so it's still linear interpolation just to use a different independent variable, right? Essentially, you can you can show that very easily. This is just simple algebra, right? If you take expectation, right, this one being Martingale, this little t will become s, right? And then if you do expectation here, the little t will become little s. And therefore, if you combine these two, a lot of terms will actually you know cancel, and essentially you will be left with this martingale at time s and t capital t3 
meaning this is the Martingale target of this particular term. And that turns out to be the expectation of this quantity. So it's a very simple linear, you know, simple algebra, right? You guys can, uh, you know, if you want. So this one essentially guarantees um, the interpreted quantity automatically satisfies uh, you know, the condition. Martingale target. Of course, you need to know the Martingale target, right? If you don't know, that's a different story. Then you need to do, uh, do something else. Typically, time zero, for instance, is what you know the market can tell us, right? And uh, of course, sometimes you need to make some assumptions. But whatever assumption on time zero you make in your dynamic model, right, you automatically satisfy you know the needed Martingale condition. Oh, this is just you know. Uh, a brief introduction of how we, you know, do the Martingale modeling. Okay, so this LIBOR market model, I mean, as you guys probably have learned already, right? There's a different forms, a BGM as the initial form, and then, you know, Jamshidian, right, came with another form, right? And, uh, but in terms of a general Martingale modeling, what we'll do typically is we start to find the Martingale quantity, okay? And we know uh, a forward LIBOR is the Martingale and its own uh, forward measure, okay? And then we know, okay, we can use Martingale representation. So under, you know, under certain technical conditions, right, this diffusion process can be represented by Brownian motion, okay, and then we can assume log normal. Just for example, you know, we don't have to. We can use CE. We can use stock law, stochastic volatility, right? But the starting point is Martingale, identifying the Martingale measure, and then perform Martingale representation. So essentially, you get this, you know, uh, stochastic differential equation. Then you need to change, you know, uh, measure or change numeric. Right, because this one essentially says for a particular LIBOR, you have a Brownian motion and a different measure, right? So uh, that has a limited usage, right? A lot of the derivative trades, you know, IR trades, essentially it's sensitive to the entire you know, yield curve. So you need to make sure you model the entire yield curve consistently. So therefore, you have to uh, change the probability measure so that... Um, Everything is specified in the same common measure, right? And you know, and of course, you can have a choice which one you want to right, use as a common measure. Right? So, a simple, you know, change of uh, numerator. I mean, essentially, we can get uh, stochastic equation like this, and then you know. Uh, You know, we um, right have a uh, we have a you know Brownian motion. Uh, right, we have a Brownian motion with a correlation, you know, like this. 
So this is essentially a market model in in a general form, right? Uh, with full dimensionality, meaning um, one Brownian motion per term of a libel. So that's the full dimensionality. And then you need to do yeah. Hi. Uh, can you can you wrap up because we we need uh, a bit oh, okay. of time, uh, a bit of time uh, for questions. Oh oh, you need to be Sorry, uh, I I can actually wrap, wrap up now, right? If you want to. Sure. Okay. Uh, any any conclusions? Or? Well, okay. You know the the conclusion is the following thing, right? Um, you know there is a need for enterprise level uh, models. To handle non-linear portfolio effects, and uh, we need to leverage, you know, our three-level models. And by doing so, we need to, you know, uh, employ morning air testing, morning air um, resampling, interpolation, and not only we need we need that for CVA, but we also need that for funding liquidity capital risks, which are very critical risks, and people have started paying more and more attention to uh, to these risks especially since after the crisis, right? Uh, because of time limitation, I'm not going to be able to finish another example, but if you like, you can take a look, you know, page 22, uh, you know, of the slides. Hopefully, you can uh, circulate you that. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you, guys. Yeah, uh, thank you. So, yeah, the, the slides, uh, we'll, we'll publish the slides uh, probably later tonight. Uh, so, uh, please take a look. Um, okay. So, to wrap up, uh, uh, let me see. I wanted to bring up. That's okay. Probably, uh, if it's a course website, that's fine. Yeah. yeah uh, the uh, I did add a few topics, which were used last year for final paper, for for your interest in the document, which is on the website. So uh, take a look. Uh, basically, yeah. Uh, the 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 themes there were mostly black shoals or uh, or more advanced models or uh, manipulation black shoals equation uh, there was a very interesting work on statistical analysis of commodity uh, commodity data so if so somebody is up for it that would be uh, very interesting uh, and uh, there were some a few numerical and monte carlo uh, 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 projects so any questions or yeah, so actually we uh, was planning to give you a bit more time to uh, ask your questions, but since we have five minutes, yeah. I think uh, maybe I'd like to ask you to just think about what uh, uh, we learned uh, this term, right? So, and uh, Peter can add on the, what do we think uh, you know, on the mathematics and also both applications. And in conjunction, while you're doing the final paper, uh, just focusing on the new things you think uh, you learned and uh, uh, what you like to explore in the next uh, uh, you know, stage of your uh, research. So I think uh, probably we don't have a lot of time for uh, lots of questions, but if you have any questions, this will be a good opportunity to ask about the paper or, or the course. Peter, you want to make some comments? Um, sure. I, I'd just like to say that I think this course was a very challenging course for most of you, and that was, I guess, our intention. And I really respect all the hard work and effort that everyone put into the class. And uh, in terms of the final paper, um, 
you know, we will be looking at uh, your background and, you know, look at look for, you know, insights that uh, demonstrate what, what you've learned in the course. And I've already reviewed several uh, papers and, you know, I'm very pleased with the results. So I think everyone's done a, a great job. Um, th this course, uh, you know, I think was, is intended to provide you with the foundations of the math for the financial applications as well as you know, an excellent introduction and exposure to those applications. And uh, I, th I think you'll find this course uh, valuable over, over the course of your careers and uh, look forward to, I don't know, contributing, uh, you know, insights, you know, with questions you might have following the course. I'm sure the other faculty feel the same way. You know, we want to be a good resource for you uh, now and afterwards. Very, very well put. So please feel free to, to to contact us and please please stay uh, stay in touch uh, the all all the uh, inf contact details are on the website uh, we plan to have repeat of this class next year so please tell your friends or stop by next year which will which will be uh, next fall uh, it will not be exactly the same uh, we, we will try to make it slightly different but it will be close well, if you have any uh, suggested topics you feel you haven't been exposed to or like to know more send us emails we can I think the, one of the value of this class is we can bring in pretty much you know everyone from the frontier yeah. of this industry to give you some insights of what's going on please take a review uh, on the website uh, the, this is uh, this is important uh, um, and that's, that's about okay well thank you for your participation <laughs> Yeah, thank you, AT. It was a pleasure.